Hi, this is the Cancer Liberation Project podcast. If you've been touched by cancer and have some fear around remaining healthy, you are in the right place. As a 20-year-plus cancer survivor, Haley knows how unsettling it can be to not only hear the words, you have cancer, but also the uncertainty and fear that comes when you have been declared cancer-free. The Cancer Liberation Project was born out of Haley's desire to make cancer less scary for people, to give people hope that they can not only heal from cancer, but live their best, most vibrant life after cancer. Get ready to be inspired with your host, Haley Dubin. Hi, and welcome to the Cancer Liberation Project. Today, I sit down with Elizabeth Benedict to discuss her memoir, Rewriting Illness, A View of My Own. With wisdom, self-effacing wit, and the storytelling artistry of an acclaimed novelist, Elizabeth Benedict recollects her cancer diagnosis after discovering multiplying lumps in her armpit. In compact, explosive chapters, interspersed with moments of self-mocking levity, she chronicles her illness from muddled diagnosis to natural remedies, to debilitating treatments, as she gathers sustenance from family, an assortment of urbane friends, and a fearless cancer guru. Amidst weighty concerns of the COVID pandemic and an all-consuming obsession over her ailments, rewriting illness is suffused with suspense, secrets, and the unexpected solace of silence. I look forward to sharing my conversation with Elizabeth. But before I do, just a couple things to mention. First, a reminder to head over to my website at revivewellness.com to get your free seven top tips to keep cancer away and feel confident in your body again. That's R-E-V-I-V-E wellness.com. And second, I want to take a moment to thank the Carl Felt Center, who makes the show possible. Hi, Elizabeth. Welcome to the Cancer Liberation Project. I'm so excited to have you on today. I'm really excited to be here. I'm really, really happy that you're doing this and that you're here to do it and that you've decided it's a good thing to do because it's great. Well, thank you so much. And I have to say, I really enjoyed the book. It was hard to put it down. It really was. It, it, it was funny at times. I mean, you're very witty. And it was also frank. And I think it's really helpful for people going through the cancer journey. And actually, afterwards, too. Um, I've been you know, 25 years out, and, and there was a lot of things I can relate to. So I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Now, I was curious, what made you decide to write it? Because I know it's not an easy, easy subject. Sure. Yeah, I I was very reluctant to to write about this. I'm a writer. I've written a lot of books. I write frequently about things that happened to me. Um, But this was really personal. It was about my body. If I was going to tell the story, I have to talk about other medical conditions I had and and um talk about my husband, talk about my stepdaughter, my family. And I was really reluctant to expose myself that much. But a friend, dear friend, 
who went through this with me, she said, you have to do this because it will help other people. What you went through and the, and the difficulties you went through, and not so much only with the cancer, but with getting diagnosed and, and having doctors say things that weren't true and trying to decode what they said and, and the frustrations of just getting diagnosed, they were so profound that I think my friend wanted felt that that if I could write about that, other people would would feel some comfort and some companionship because they too were probably going through some of the same experiences. And so I I felt and my friend really um she really encouraged me and she said, you just have to do this. And I kind of said, okay, I'll give it a try. <laughs> the other thing is that there are many cancer memoirs, as you know. And so I would say, in general, the world may not need another cancer memoir or may not, um, publishers may not feel that we need another one. So I, I was very, I really understood that I was wading into um, a, a crowded field. Yes. And and, I, and in order to, to write something or in order to, to produce something, that would stand out, I'd have to do something maybe a little different. And I wasn't sure what that was for a long time. Yeah. And you really did. You made it different. And, you know, like I said, I had a hard time putting it down, which is funny for yeah. a, a cancer memoir. It doesn't, it's not something you think like, wow, yeah, this is very suspenseful and very, it just, you're a great, great writer. Thank you. So, you know, you mentioned several times in the book that you are a hypochondriac. And, you know, I was wondering, was cancer something that you were always afraid of getting? I mean, I know you said your schoolmate had it, Mm -hmm. had the same lymphoma, correct? And and you were always fearful of, of getting cancer. Yeah. After, you know, knowing that she had it. So I was wondering if it was something that you thought of even before that. Well, I went to a a school that had 22 kids in our whole grade. It was a very small private school. I just went for a few years. And in one of those years, one of the 22 girls got lymphoma and died very quickly. And I was 17 years old. And so I think for all of us, it was deeply shocking. Um, I don't really know how much I thought about it before that. You know, I was 17. I was a teenager. What what did I have to think about cancer? I mean, I knew I knew somebody who had lung cancer, but that was, I think, my only exposure to cancer. So it's hard to remember before that, but I, I don't think I thought about it before that. But I think since then, from when I was 17, you know, whenever I if there was a bump or, you know, I I, I would I would kind of panic. And I think some some of the other women in our class have the same reaction, having been through what we went through with our with our classmate. So I think women are much more attuned to the possibility of cancer because of breast cancer, because we get our breasts examined every year. We go to the doctor every year and get our insides examined. And um, even though men are more likely to get cancer statistically, women are more concerned about it because they they're in touch with their bodies much more than men are, right? Yes. And growing up, you know, we hear this one's mother had breast cancer and this woman had breast cancer. And so breast cancer is very much something 
that's that hovers over all of our lives, I, I feel. Right. If you go get your breast checked every year, how could it not? And the reason I asked you that question is because when I was younger, I was fearful of, of getting cancer. Uh, there were different people in my community that got it, and I was young. Um, and it was always something that I was a little nervous about. And so it's interesting that, you know, then that that happened, right? I guess it's be careful what you focus on, that kind of thing, yeah. um, if you believe that, right? But I wanted to go back because you mentioned that the doctors were sort of dismissive. And I would love you to explain that to the audience because, you know, obviously they haven't read the book yet. They will soon, but... For a few weeks, I was feeling something a little weird in this part of my body, and it was very vague. It didn't hurt. It wasn't constant. And so I sort of didn't think about it much. But, you know, there was like a little, it was almost like if you have a sand in your shoe, you know, it's not like a pebble, but it's sort of like there's something a little funny there. And one night, several weeks into this, I just went like this and I went, (laughs) and there was this lump there that of the sort um, that we don't expect to find, but also that you kind of think you might find in your breast, right? Not under your arm. And and I went to the doctor immediately. I went, I, that was 11 o'clock at night and I was at the doctor's office at noon the next day. And she said, this needs to be looked at. She gave me a prescription for a sonogram. I went to the sonogram place two days later And they said, oh, actually, there are two swollen lymph nodes, but we think it's an infection. We think it's, I'm sorry, it's a swollen lymph node caused by, it's called a reactive swollen lymph node caused by a nearby infection. I don't think that's what they really thought because multiplying lymph nodes is a little more troublesome than just a swollen lymph node. But again, I'm not a doctor, so I say these things based on my patient knowledge, okay? But the doctor said, okay, there are two swollen lymph nodes. And they said to my doctor, if they don't resolve in two or three weeks, she needs a PET scan or a biopsy. And But the operating assumption was that these were swollen lymph nodes. Two or three weeks went by and my doctor would not prescribe a, um, a PET scan or a biopsy. She wanted to do another sonogram. And the doctor's instructions had been a little vague as to whether there needed to be another sonogram. Anyway, it was all this kind of stuff where she was splitting hairs and she was saying, no, I'm not going to order a PET scan now because it's too expensive and too invasive. And this thing was under my arm that everybody felt it. It it wasn't going away. And I didn't know at the time, but if anybody had felt it, they would have felt that it was harder than a swollen lymph node. Okay. And I didn't know those things at the time, but a doctor should have known those things. And a doctor should have said, we need to get this biopsied right away. And that was the problem. And I had some other medical issues. And so everybody was focusing on these other things. And they would say, I went to a doctor about some other thing. And I said, you know, I also have this lump under my arm. And the doctor puts his hand under my arm and he goes, it's huge. And then he doesn't say this needs to be biopsied. He sort of went off in another direction. And I think everybody wanted me not to have cancer. So they were looking for other, other diagnoses. They, they understood there was something there, but I can't explain 
what happened, right? I can't, but right. but there was a lot of, I think that the uh, sort of drama of a cancer diagnosis is so huge that I think doctors will will kind of go to great lengths not to not to have to say that, you know, and I don't mean that they're cruel or malevolent, um, but they'll they'll sort of look for every other diagnosis before they go there because that one is so huge. And I understand that. I get it. They don't want to deal with a patient freaking out, right? Because she's told she's had cancer. I mean, she has cancer. I mean, I understand it's a big deal. But you would think they're they're used to yeah. telling people they have cancer, you know? and Or also saying this needs to be checked immediately instead of, well, wait a few weeks. You know, oh, well, maybe, maybe not. Let's look at this. Let's look at that. So there was a lot of that. And, and what was most offensive in some of it was my women doctors telling me that they were concerned about my anxiety. That really stuck in my craw and it still sticks in my craw. And I was worried that I had cancer and they were, they wanted to give me, you know, tranquilizers instead of giving me a biopsy, which is what I needed. Yeah. And this is women doctors, New York City. I had health insurance. I had money to pay, you know, my bills and uh, in 2017. So there was really no excuse for that kind of sort of uh, medical gaslighting. But since I've come out about my situation, which I was very quiet about until the book came out, whenever I talk about what happened, so many people say that happened to me. I was misdiagnosed. I went through a million diagnoses before they figured it out. Very, very common to do a lot of dancing around what might be wrong. Yeah. And sometimes you just don't know. I mean, sometimes there is just uncertainty and it's hard to figure out. But this was this was an easy one. Yeah. And it's just, it just means you really have to advocate for yourself, right? People listening, you know, insist if you feel in your gut that something's not right, insist. Yeah. that they do a biopsy or whatever test is necessary. Right. Now, did you just kind of trust them or you kind of didn't want to know, you know, like what was your process, your thought process when they told you this? When they told, when I was told I had cancer or when I- was- No, when they told you, oh, don't worry about it. Go ahead and go on vacation or whatever it was. Well, I wondered mm-hmm. if they were lying to me. Um, and so I spent a lot of time, I did- I finally, after six weeks, I finally went to a doctor who said, oh, we need to get this biopsy. Now, I just want to clarify something that I didn't know at the time. There are three kinds of biopsies. There's a fine needle aspiration where they just stick a needle in whatever, pull out some cells and put them under a microscope. And they can tell only whether there are abnormal cells. They can't tell much more. That's a fairly simple procedure. That's what should have been done much earlier on. The, the the secondary, more elaborate biopsies are more complicated and more expensive and more invasive, but they only do them if there are abnormal cells that show up. And I and I'm angry that that wasn't done much sooner. Okay, but I didn't know all those things as I was going into this. I was just like, oh, what a biopsy? That was just this thing. I, I didn't exactly know what it what it meant, but. When I finally went to a doctor who was like the fourth or fifth doctor after many weird tests for all kinds of things, he said, oh, well, let's get this biopsy today. And I said, I'm going on vacation tomorrow. 
I don't want to find out I have cancer today, but if you tell me I need to do it, I'll do it. You know, I mean, I was, I, I'm a good patient. I was a good patient. I was trying to take proper care of myself. Um, but this doctor said, no, it's okay. You can go on vacation and, you know, you'll come back. When I came back, we did a biopsy and then he went on vacation. And it was more than another month before I found out what was wrong. Because so it wasn't like people were grossly incompetent, you know, although there was a little bit of that at the beginning, but it was just like, well, well, I'm going on vacation now. And I'm just standing there thinking you're going on vacation. And I've been waiting three months to find out. And it was the end of August. And I couldn't very well say, well, I'm going to find another doctor because I knew I couldn't find another doctor. And I said to the doctor, is somebody going to call me? Is somebody, you know, when they get the results? I I, I did advocate for myself at that point. And he said, yes, we'll call you. And then nobody called. Which is just horrible. Yeah. So I don't want to overstate the incompetence that I dealt with because I'm very lucky. I had good care eventually. And I don't think the, the time lag caused me greater illness. Okay. But just the drama of this was very, it was very trying. And so people need to know that there are different kinds of biopsies that you have to advocate for yourself, that doctors will always try to put you off unless they think you have something. And again, I'm not a doctor, but something along the lines of leukemia, you know, where you're just laid out flat and you can't move it, or if, if, you know, but unless you have something that's really extreme or you have a mammogram that has, uh, and you have a lump, my experience is, and that never happened to me, but I know about this. When you have a mammogram and they find a lump, they're like, you're not getting out of here until we find out what this is. Right. And nobody was doing that with me. Nobody was saying, we have to stop everything. We have to find out what this is. So I, I was sort of thinking, well, it's not that serious or nobody's panicking. So it, it was a very strange bunch of conflicting messages, but I kept feeling this thing. Right. Exactly. The tumor is only a symptom of cancer, not the cause. Hello, I'm Dr. Michael Carlfeld. I'm the owner of the Carlfeld Center in Meridian, Idaho. We specialize in cutting-edge integrative oncology care, addressing the cause and not just the symptom of cancer. There are 11 factors you need to address when diagnosed with cancer. To learn more of what they are, get my free ebook when you visit thecarfulcenter.com. Along with the ebook, I will email you a free webinar series where world-renowned specialists will tell you what you need to do to address these 11 factors. You'll hear from experts like Jane McLellan, Dr. Paul Anderson, Dr. Neil McKinney, Dr. William Lee, Dr. Nasha Winters, and Dr. Isaac Elias. Don't miss out on this life-saving information. I also offer a free 15-minute cancer consult where we can go over where you are at in your cancer journey and how the cutting-edge therapies we offer can benefit you. Give the Carful Center call at 208-338-8902 or visit our website at thecarfulcenter.com. I know you mentioned that people have 
cancer personality. Like there's a cancer personality. Do you? Oh, no, I, I don't. I don't believe that. I was talking about that phenomenon. Okay. I, I didn't believe that myself. People used to believe it. It used to be considered a, a phenomenon. Yes. And that's why people got cancer before people knew more about why cancer happened. That it was sort of like when they Greek gods, you know, the god of weather and the god of travel and the god of they 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 make up stories for why things happen because they they're mysteries. I I don't believe in. Okay, yeah, because I know a, there was a psychologist that had a whole list of of the cancer personality. You know, being people pleasers and type A personality and all that kind of stuff. So I was curious what you thought about that. But that's I'm rolling my I'm rolling my eyes in case people can't see. <laughs> The statistics are that one in two men will get cancer and one in three women. Those are just raw statistics. So I don't think that one in two people has the cancer personality. Yeah. Or maybe, maybe we all do. I maybe that's it. Maybe that's right. Who knows? Who knows? All personalities are the cancer personality. Yes. And we know there's been a lot of research about unresolved traumas you know, staying in, in our cells and when you can't release them, illness can form. I was wondering, do you feel like generational trauma or any trauma that you had was a factor in in your cancer diagnosis? No, I don't. Uh, But again, I don't know how anybody could tell, but I do, I do know, I I think uh, generational trauma has something to do with my anxiety or uh, or or my chemistry you know uh, my mother was a very anxious person she also had a lot of tragedy in her life and i think her own fears made it easier for me to feel fearful uh, my sister and i have different kinds of fears my sister has one set of anxiety and fear and i have quite different but we both have a certain amount but so i i believe and and i have several friends who are the children of Holocaust survivors. And I think that when you look at those families, you know, that that's trauma that can get passed on. Right. Yes. Um, and I don't know whether it's at the cellular level or psychological, but the cell, your cells are, you know, become part of your makeup, right. And your psyche affects your cells. Um, but I, I don't, I, I don't have any reason to think that, family trauma or my own anxiety contributed. I don't have any reason to think that. If somebody does an analysis and says, no, 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 that's that's not true, then, you know, that's another matter. Right, right. Well, I was wondering if there was anything you you did or anything you're doing now to, to avoid a, a cancer recurrence. I mean, is it something that like, okay, you you got cancer and and now you're living your life differently. Mm-hmm. I I'm eating much less sugar than I used to eat. And I used to be really really addicted to sugar, sugary things. And I think if anything that might have contributed to cancer, but I don't know, okay? Like 5 or 6 years ago on the Memorial Sloan Kettering website when you looked up sugar, there was nothing. And now there's a lot of uh, information about um, 
sugar as, and I don't want to say sugar causes cancer, and I don't know enough about the medicine to explain it, but there is a, a well-known cancer doctor who says he doesn't eat sugar anymore. Um, I guess it, it, it can feed the cancer, make it grow more. It can feed the cancer. Yeah. And it's any kind of starch and starch is converted into sugar in your stomach. And, um, so I eat much, I, I haven't eliminated sugar, but I eat probably 90% less sugar than I used to. And in the process, fortunately, I've lost the taste for it. And so when I have something that's very sweet, I kind of go, I have a little bit and then I stop. And I would encourage people, I think that I I would encourage people who have cancer, who who are thinking about this, to do some research on the role of sugar potentially in cancer. And sugar includes alcohol and starch. And my, I I don't eat, I don't drink, I don't eat starch for the most part. I eat a very, very low amount of starch. I don't eat potatoes or pasta. I'm one of those horrible people, you know, <laughs> don't eat carbs. But, but I do think that some of that, uh, there is, let me just say that there's, there's some research that you can read about that suggests that it could contribute. Yeah. And and one thing where there is research that's real is in um, in drinking alcohol and drinking. And I think pe- women who drink more alcohol do have a higher incidence of of certain cancers. I'm not a doctor. I don't want to, you know. Right, right. But but that's what I've breast read. cancer and that yeah some others yeah. And alcohol is sugar, you know. So I I think that you know, I would urge people to look into that and not just think, oh, okay, now that my cancer is over, I'm going to go back to having two drinks a night and birthday cake and stuff like that. Right. And that's the kind of why I asked the question, because sometimes people, you know, they do the treatment mm-hmm. and they get that clear from their doctor. Oh, everything's great. You're cancer free. And, you know, I want to empower people to, to, take control a little bit, you know, when it comes to your health, it's not like we can control everything, but just the things that we, that we can control. Absolutely. I mean, in the same way that you, you know, you, you don't smoke or you, you, you think I'm not going to do this and processed food has a lot of, um, I can't remember the words now, but whatever they are. Yeah. There's different fats and a lot of chemicals. Yes. And chemicals. Exactly. And um, so I think it's wise to to eat healthy and eat organic foods wherever you can. I know they're expensive and sometimes hard to get. Yeah. So I was wondering if your fears have subsided now that you have had cancer. Are you your other fears? Are you are you less fearful? Well, I think I am. Um, I had a really profound fear of flying, which I write about in the book. And I went places. And uh, if you saw where I traveled, you think, well, what? She didn't have a fear of flying. She went to Russia. She went here. She went there. Vietnam. Well, I went to Vietnam after cancer. But but when I, I went on several trips after I got sick and I was startled to discover that I didn't have the same fear of flying that I had. It was really a dramatic change. And it was very puzzling to me. And I kept thinking, well, what what happened? Like, where did it go? This lifelong terror that I had. 
And I'm still not quite sure, like if somebody wanted to read my palm or or uh, figure that out, read the stars. Um, but I think, but something really did happen. Um, and I guess, uh, I guess the the fear I went through of having cancer, thinking I might have cancer, having cancer, and then the treatment, which was very profoundly devastating. And again, I, I didn't have the worst treatment, but I could see how how severe it was and how how overwhelming. And having been through that and surviving and then coming out the other side, I, I guess I thought I was a little bit more resilient than I had thought before. Yes. I don't know whether that how that keeps the planes in the sky. I'm not sure what the connection is, but <laughs> but somehow just something got rearranged in my in my box of fears. Which is amazing, you know. I know it is. I, I should probably, and I, I think I shouldn't talk about it too much because maybe it'll come back, but but I just went to Italy and I was like, okay, we're getting on this plane. At the same time, if I don't have to take a plane, I won't take a plane. I mean, it, it's it, if I have to, if I need to go someplace, I'll do it. But I'm I'm planning a trip that I have to do for the promoting the book, and they, I have a chance to take a plane, and I'm like, mm, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> if you have the choice to drive, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you can't drive to Europe, you know. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> not yet. Yeah. So, I was wondering if, well, one, if you've had any advice for our listeners, you know, what would you tell them? What would be your most important advice? At what at what stage are you thinking? Well, I would say you know someone who's listening who just had a diagnosis. Okay, what would you tell them? And actually, I would love to hear after too. I work with a lot of people that are are finished with treatment and and are trying to move on with their lives and all that. Um, I guess if you just had a diagnosis, you know, I'm not a doctor and I don't want to give medical advice, but having cancer in 2023 is very different from having it in 1978 when, when Susan Sontag wrote, you know, had breast cancer and wrote her book. I mean, there are amazing breakthroughs that happen every year in cancer. And so people have very different outcomes than they had 10 or 20 years ago. And there are incredible treatments. So don't assume that cancer equals death because it doesn't. And obviously there are certain kinds of cancer that are worse than others. And I don't need to, you know, we all know what they are, but again, they don't, there are incredible treatments and new treatments all the time. So there are thousands of people working on cancer, right? This is a huge, a huge commitment that, that I know doctors, you know, that they say, I'm not, I'm not going to rest until I find out more about how to cure cancer. Um, so just take heart that there are lots of treatments that didn't exist before. And there are many, many people who get cancer and people get treated. And uh, like you, like me, your life goes on. I mean, you, you you can get treated. And even when cancer recurs, there are more treatments. I found out that if my cancer had recurred, there are new treatments available now that weren't available when I got sick five years ago. So that's it's really important to to know that. Yeah. The other thing is, I guess there are certain oh sort of protocols, and and somebody might say, well, you should join a support group um, that will help. 
I didn't join a support group only because I didn't want to be with people who were sick. Um, I wanted, and, and I, I spent a lot of time talking to friends who had had cancer in the past. And I, that made me feel much more comfortable, com- comforted than being with people who were in the middle of it. But, you know, some people might choose that. There's no one way to do this. It's very, very personal. And you also, I would just say, you have to tell people what you want. You have to tell your family members what you want. I had a family member who was so anxious about my being sick that she was consumed with her own anxiety. So if I said I was afraid I was going to die, she would she would just be upset that I was so upset. And it was like, and I just said, I can't deal with you right now. Yeah, that's not helpful. This is not helpful. I and and maybe you need to join a support group. Okay. But you have to set boundaries if people are doing things that that are too demanding for you or that make you uncomfortable. Right. Great advice. Great advice. And and even if they're your loved ones and and they're they they're doing everything they can to help you, they but um it took me a long time to figure this out, but the people around you are upset that you have cancer, you know, because they might lose you, right? They, that's their fear. And so they may not be as sturdy as you want them to be because they have their own fears. Yes. Right. So I think it's, it, it was very important for me to talk to people who'd already had cancer, who I wasn't related to. And it gave me a lot of, a, a lot of hope and a lot of comfort to, to be able to talk to people who'd been through it. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Great advice. Uh, I wanted to ask you one last question before we get into random round. I was thinking about it because we were talking about fear before. So once you were declared cancer-free or or that you were pretty good, it was three years later, right? Or two and a half. Yeah. And then the pandemic happened, correct? So I was curious. Days later. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I was so curious how you handled all that. You know, were you a germaphobe? Were you nervous about? Oh yeah. Oh gosh, I'm going to catch it and all that. Oh yeah. I mean, I everybody said they gained weight during the pandemic. I lost weight because I was so anxious I couldn't eat, um, and I was also at ground zero of the pandemic. I live in New York City, and so I was here, and I knew a lot of people who left, but I didn't have anywhere to go, and so I stayed here. And and yeah, no, I was terribly nervous. I also was very lucky. I I didn't work in a hospital or on a bus or on the subway. You know, I I wasn't a healthcare worker. I didn't work in a grocery store. So I didn't have to, I was one of those people who, who could stay home and flatten the curve. I remember that. That was like, oh, yes. Ancient history. But um, no, I was really quite terrified. But so, so were most of the people I know. Right. Absolutely. All somewhat older. And we were in New York. I mean, it was, it was crisis time here. Exactly. Yeah. And I was just wondering because, you know, here you go through this really difficult event and then COVID happens. Yeah. But I I was, um, there was a, a moment when I realized when there were all these problems on airlines, you know, people getting into fights and stuff. And I realized, I thought, well, now everybody's afraid of flying just like I am. <laughs> <laughs> You don't feel alone. <laughs> I don't feel alone. Um, now there are reasons, other reasons to be afraid of flying, not just that the plane's going to fall out of the sky, but that somebody's going to punch you on, you know, <laughs> the airline. Which is crazy, right? Yeah. Yeah. But I did feel 
I also sort of felt like now everybody knows how I feel. Now everybody's a hypochondriac, just like I am. Yes. So that also made me feel a little bit better. You know, <laughs> I, I would have traded it for no COVID, but but it it was a sort of a weird mirror, you know, weird kind of reverberation. It's like, yeah, now you know what it's like to be afraid you're going to die all the time, which is how I felt. Uh, yeah. But you I'd say I'm saying that in a jokey way, but you know, it was serious. Right. But it was also funny. It was like, wait a second, what's going on here? Now everybody's a hypochondriac, you know? Right. So I'm always looking for ways of, you know, fitting in and humor, understanding what's going on and understanding what's going on. Right. Right. And why it could be funny. Yeah. Yeah. You, you write very well. So, you know, bringing in humor, I was smiling a lot. So are you ready for random round? Yes. Fill in the blank. Freedom to you is? Being able to vote and having your vote count. The last show you binged and loved? Mad Men, because I watched it 15 years later. I I watched it 15 years late, and I recently watched it about a month ago. That's great. When you're feeling afraid, what do you do? Well, there are a lot of times, most times I'm afraid of something. So it's kind of like, but when I'm having an acute attack, not a panic attack, but I, I, I sometimes open a book of poetry and read poetry for a little while. And that makes me, that calms me down. If you can have a one hour discussion with someone past or present, who would it be and why? How about Jane Austen? Jane Austen, because... She's she's been such an important writer for so many decades. She was one of the only women writers whose name I knew when I was growing up. I've never we've no one has ever heard the sound of her voice. But what I really want to tell her is how much her books have last, how her books have lasted, and how much pleasure they've brought. Two hundred years of people, you know, two. I mean, just millions of people. Yeah, and. And I I want to tell her that. And I also want to hear what her voice sounds like. (laughs) What is your favorite go-to snack? Oatmeal cookies. I used to, it used to be chocolate chip cookies, but they have too much sugar in them now. So low sugar oatmeal cookies. I love them. (laughs) What's one simple thing that brings you joy? Taking photographs. I love taking photographs and I have a lot of photographs on my website and I I'm sell my photographs and I love taking photographs. What is on your nightstand? A lot of books I haven't finished. (laughs) I figured you'd have a lot of books. (laughs) But but haven't finished because I go to bed and I start reading and then I fall asleep and then the book falls on the floor. I guess a lot of battered books. What is your favorite form of exercise? Bicycling and walking. What is one thing you're really grateful for in your life right now? That I've I've written this book and that it's being published and that I can share my experience with other people who might be going through some of what I went through and that that it might be a comfort to them. I'm very grateful that I that I'm in that position right now. Beautiful. And would you like to say your website where people can get the book, hear more about you? Sure. Um, my website is my name, elizabethbenedict.com. And if you forget that, you can just Google my name and you'll get to my website pretty quickly. And there's a lot of information about where to buy the book there. And 
I'm doing a lot of events. I'm doing uh, some events in bookstores and the Miami Book Fair in November. And I'm also doing some online interviews that are going to be streaming. So it's all on my website, elizabethbenedict.com. Perfect. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking to you. And and I know the audience is going to get a lot out of it. So thank you. Thank you. That's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. Doing so will really help this podcast get noticed and will help us to inspire more people. And remember, the sky is the limit when you take your power back when it comes to your health.